Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Will Braun, your host today. Today, uh, we have historian, author, psychoanalyst, George Macari joining us. George Macari is the author of the widely acclaimed Revolution in Mind, the creation of psychoanalysis, which received the Gradiva Prize and the Hartman Award, and was called the best history of its kind by Harold Bloom. The book has received over 80 reviews worldwide and has been the focus of numerous international conferences. It has been published in German, Spanish, and Greek, and is in translation in Russian, Korean, and Japanese. Soul Machine, the book that we'll be discussing today, The Invention of the Modern Mind, is his second book. His essays have won numerous honors and have, and he's appeared, uh, and have appeared in the New York Times, The Lancet, The Week, and Cabinet. He's director of the DeWitt Wallace Institute for the History of Psychiatry. Dr. Macari is professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and adjunct professor at Rockefeller University and the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. He attended Brown University. Cornell University Medical College and Columbia Psychoanalytic Center. He lives with his family here in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Macari. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're very excited about this. So um, the book we're discussing today is Soul Machine, uh, published by Norton in 2015. Uh, George, the first thing that strikes me about your book is it's 700 pages. It's huge. It's huge. But it's it's chock full with so much information. So uh, is this this is the biggest book you've written? Um, You know, it's interesting because uh, the vagaries of publication, it's about the same size as Revolution in Mind. But the the publishers decided that they wanted to put less words on the page. And um, and so it looks a bit thicker. Yeah, Um, it looks intimidating, but it's actually gripping. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, um, you know, look, part of the idea of what I try to do when I write history is expansive. And so um, that ends up in big books. And, 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 and so, you know, one of the things I try not to do is overly reduce things, um, you know, draw a monochromatic picture. You know, I really am looking for, um, uh, I was actually delighted in the Wall Street Journal, the reviewer, called it a polyphony. And, and that is kind of my idea that there is many voices um, that have contributed to our way of thinking about the mind. And I am trying to in some way create a kind of tableau or a kind of a picture for people of a wide range of activities that try to answer a core set of questions. So the questions recur, but the different approaches and the different people in the different communities that try to answer them shift. And I think that's what makes the book interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So what really um, was your motivation to write about a history of the mind? Well, uh, you know, uh, it's a good question. I, I finished Revolution in Mind, uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, what what uh, people urged me to do was to continue writing about the history of psychoanalysis, because uh, that book ends um, in 1945 with the collapse of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't see that, that that was my next project. And what I wanted to do, in fact, was... Um, write a history of psychiatry. So I uh, thought, okay, I'm going to write a history of psychiatry, and I started to pursue that, and um, it pretty quickly kind of went dead on me. It seemed boring. It seemed seemed like it wasn't really gripping the right questions. Now, the history of psychiatry, of course, goes back before the history of psychoanalysis. So, mm-hmm. you know, most people start at the beginning of the 19th century, and I was starting it there too, and it just didn't. It, it seemed clear to me that I was jumping into the midstream, that the questions I wanted to have in focus weren't in focus, and that I, only when I moved the lens back and asked the question of like, oh, before there's a psychiatry, there's got to be a psyche, there's got to be a mind. Before there's mental health and mental illness, there has to be a mind. And what's the story there? And and so that really got me curious. And when I went looking for that story. I was very unsatisfied. You know, what you find really is that story is told mostly amongst philosophers, speaking to philosophers, and they write this very kind of bare bones, not very contextual accounts where, you know, they kind of pull out an idea from a very complicated social context and like compare it to an idea from another completely different social context. So kind of in the book, it's kind of snotty, but I say that, you know, some of them speak as if, you know, Plato, Descartes, and Wittgenstein were sitting around arguing over dinner. And, um, and I didn't want to write that kind of story. So that really took me back. And I said, I, when I really understood that that was the, a story that hadn't been told, and I realized that was part of the story of the beginning of mental health and mental illness and mental medicine, that, that to tell the story of psychiatry, when I had to go back to talk about these arguments about whether there was such a thing as a mind. Mm-hmm. And so then the whole thing kind of took shape from there, and that's how I got going. Hmm. So one of the questions that I have just personally is, how did you get into history? I mean, I think that's so interesting. You've got a really good background with you know, um, psychiatry and psychoanalysis and history. How did you really become a historian? Well, you know, uh, I, it's it, it's an interesting question. I think that, you know, uh, partly the answer is institutional, which is to say that I, as a young, um, uh, about-to-go-to-medical-school person who was interested in history and philosophy and literature, was um, eager to find a way to exercise those muscles while being in medicine. And... Um, you know, there was a lot going on in our culture at that time. Foucault was, you know, uh, all the rage in terms of uh, his critique of the history of psychiatry and um, the Freud wars were starting to kick up in terms of uh, debating Freud's legacy. And so there was a good deal of stuff going on. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I in my book, I, I, uh, you'll find this as a, as a running thread that I believe that generative intellectual communities create um, opportunities for people that don't exist otherwise. And so for me, the opportunity was that there happened to be this 
strange thing, which is an institute for the study of the history of psychiatry, interdisciplinary at Cornell. Um, and as a uh, medical student, I actually transferred to Cornell to, in part, be able to um, do work in that institute. So that was even as a medical student. So I had this interest that was kind of percolating, and then it was really fostered by this community with this extraordinary library and an array of some of the great scholars in the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. And that really, you know, uh, became my intellectual home. Mm. That's great. I mean, it's such a cool job to have, to be able to have, um, to be able to do so many different things, to be a clinician, to write not only about clinical practice, but also about history. I think that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really fortunate. I have to say, very lucky. (laughs) So your book is really divided into four parts. Um, So maybe we could just kind of traverse through the book a bit and give the audience a sense of kind of what it's packed with. I I think um, I am not a historian. I did not. I think my history background is probably largely American. So even the parts when you talk about the the revolutionary, not the Revolutionary War, but the French Revolution, um, you really made me think on a number of different levels of what went into that revolution uh, Mm -hmm. and how much uh, the politics of the mind uh, really have political ramifications. So you start in part one, which you entitled The the Lost Souls of Modernity, and um, there's a lot of the church. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could uh, just generally speak about what was going on at that time, um, why the church is such almost uh, a central character in your book, and, yeah. and what the implications are of that. Yeah, let, let, let me um, answer that with a, just by, by taking a step back first and saying, um, I want to make it clear, I don't think uh, most psychoanalysts know this story, and um, I certainly didn't until I did tons and tons of research. Um, and it... it I think one of the points I want to make to your audience is this, that this is a book I wrote after writing a history of psychoanalysis, and it's for a reason. The reason is that the building blocks for psychoanalysis come from this history. Yeah. And I think that that's a very important point. The point being that, you know, all these arguments about was Freud a fraud? Was he, did he make this stuff up? Are psychoanalysts like part of a cult? They make these things up. Uh, really, uh, I think, is undermined if you have a deeper sense of the history of the mind and attempts to understand it. Mm-hmm. So this book really lays out a running set of arguments about is the mind more dominated by thought or passion? Is it more conscious or unconscious? Is it something that unites people within a society or isolates them? Is it the source of you know, all of these things that, 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 that um, end up being building blocks for the Freudian synthesis have very deep roots in Western society and Western culture. Mm-hmm. So that's really the overview of what this book does for a potential psychoanalytic audience. Now, going back to your question, um, yeah, the first part of the book is about, you know, the breakdown of the longstanding beliefs that were scholastic and um, Christian in Western society and, that had to do with the soul and the way that articulates itself is through a battle between these very few at first band of rebels 
that start pursuing a secular agenda and the church, which very frequently is their enemy and in opposition. Now, when I say the church, of course, it gets more complicated because there's the Catholic church and especially in France, and there's the array of Protestant um, sects that, that emerge after the Reformation. And, you know, part of the story here is about how the mind emerged as both a scientific object and a political object, kind of at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the debates were deeply charged because if you, in fact, made a claim for the mind that seemed to say that something that was traditionally thought of as the soul was material, well, that meant it died. That meant you didn't have everlasting life. This was a huge kind of heresy. So ideas about the, the mind were very, very dangerous and scandalous. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what your audience needs to, to know, and maybe uh, uh, is something that we, we have to kind of remember, is that, you know, today uh, we might think of the soul as simply something that's ethereal and maybe, if, if you're, depending on your belief, might give you everlasting life. But back then, the soul was also the home for reason, for will, for these critical higher agencies that distinguished humans from animals. And so people who started to say that stuff was material and in the brain were on very, very thin ice. But they find uh, a way around that. I mean, at least the early people do. Like Descartes, uh, even John yeah. Locke, they kind of pander to the church. They can't really say what they want to say. Well, you know, I, I, I would distinguish uh, Descartes from Locke in that regard. I, I think that it's hard to imagine for us how deeply committed all of these people were mm. to Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the being an atheist was, was absolutely scandalous and almost impossible. You know, Hobbes and Spinoza are the two that, like, go closest to that, and they, well, certainly Hobbes denied it, and, and Spinoza can be thought of as a pantheist. But, but Descartes really was specifically trying to save the Christian soul from skepticism mm -hmm. and science. And his model, which I think he was almost explicit about, he thought that the scholastics, the most conservative Catholic authorities, would love his model because science was on the move. Science was starting to clearly show that scholastic ideas about the heavens, about the earth, were wrong. Science was soon going to be clearer about the brain, clearer about physiology than the scholastics were. So this was the great threat in what... Descartes did was say, I'm going to give all of nature to skepticism and science. And through this clever philosophical strategy, quite brilliant, I'm going to suggest there's something that's not part of that. And that is the cogito. That is the, what, what is going to be not material and therefore very consistent with the Christian soul. So Hobbes and another guy named Gassendi, who I've been very interested in, mostly forgotten, these guys see him as selling out to the church. Mm -hmm. He sees himself as supporting the Catholic Church. And in fact, after the church condemns him, they come around and realize he could be their best friend. And so Catholicism and Descartes' um, a philosophy of mind become, you know, kind of part of, of uh, Catholic France. Locke, on the other hand, is, I think, a different example, um, because Locke is a Calvinist. He is a deeply committed believer. But what he does is 
he is very concerned about the claims that enthusiasts have. This is a, kind of relevant to our time because they're basically religious terrorists mm-hmm. and religious radicals who say that the secular authority of the king has absolutely no claim on me because as Protestantism opened the door to direct communion with God. So there's no cast of priests that tell you, you know, that that's not, that's not true. You're, God isn't speaking to you. There are people on the corner saying, God just told me to do this. And they have cults and they have little groups, little enthusiast groups. And Locke is quite, quite nervous that this is going to lead to constant insurrection and revolution. And he looks to creating the mind and the limits of human understanding, which is, of course, part of the name of his great work, the essay on human understanding, as a way of saying the mind is temporal, it's secular, it is the home of reason and will. But I still believe in the soul, Locke would say. It's this other thing that has to do with heaven. It has nothing to do with reason and will. And those things are part of this material mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to put people in their context. It was, it's too much to ask of these people, you know, as we sometimes do, that they be politically correct about gender and race. And, of course, we could wish that they all were. They were all, even the most radical, just a couple steps ahead of the crowd. Well, I guess the question... And so he, he was a couple steps ahead of the crowd. I mean, what, what's so interesting about your book, you're talking about history and things that happened, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but they seem so relevant today. Like you were just saying, you know, fundamentalism and, and sort of what's happening today with, with kind of uh, religious terrorism. So I think there are many, many things in the book made me think about our current time and how do we think of the mind and how do we think of the soul and religion and kind of that struggle uh, with the church, uh, pandering to the church, pandering to the politic, uh, which is still going on today. I was thinking, um, in what ways, I guess one of the questions I have are, in what ways do you think uh, psychology, psychiatry, sort of mental health still panders uh, either to the church or the political? I mean, Guantanamo Bay and the use of uh, torture and using psychologists to do that come to my mind. I mean, we're still pandering mm-hmm. to an authority structure. Um, yeah, you know, I think that, that probably uh, it's impossible in some degree not to be part of a sociopolitical structure and not be um, altered by it. But part of the reason one tries to write these histories is to give you a bigger picture mm-hmm. to alert us to these kinds of things. So mm-hmm. I think, like, for instance, one of the things that I wrote an op-ed about, about religious toleration, and my view was, you know, that, that Locke's notion of toleration, which is so critical to the foundation of liberalism, is critically based on the notion of minds, minds that are imperfect in their ways of knowing the world, fallible, prone to delusion, and therefore none of them have complete authority. So the notion of totalitarian kind of authority is one that is foreign, should be foreign, to people who adopt mentalist views. Now, you do sometimes find, disturbingly, that that is not something that people follow through on. And, and so, you know, I, I, think that, I think that, you know, that for instance, I became very interested in the Kim Davis gay mm-hmm. marriage toleration sure. thing where, where, you know, it seems to me, you know, the, 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 the argument was whether we live in a community of souls where there might be a right one and a wrong one, and if you're wrong, you're going to burn in hell. 
and or minds, in which case with things that we have only some capacity to understand, shouldn't we be tolerant? You know, so I, I think that the, you know, the, 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 the way that this book resonates is, um, and maybe this is a grand claim, uh, because it's at the fundament of our Western modernity mm-hmm. and that, that we still live torn between mind, brain, and soul were the th- are the three great worldviews that I end up concluding in this book were constructed during this period and that they make for uneasy bedfellows mm-hmm. that sometimes make for confusions and lapses and difficulties because they're not consistent with each other. And yet, for most of us, those modes all exist at some point. Even for the most irreligious, you know, in the ICU, there's a lot of people who pray. And, you know, for any of us who start to have, uh, you know, dizziness or some sort of temporary hearing loss or blindness, we go to the doctor. We don't go to the shaman and we don't go to the priest. And most of us consider our internal life to be the internal. The, the basis for the choices that we make, the intentions that we have, the desires that we have, even though my brain scientist friends say that maybe there's no such thing as intention. So we live in this world with these kinds of conflicts, and that's what I tried to articulate in this book, and I agree with you very much. They're still very much alive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just being a psychologist who does a lot of psychological testing, I'm really sort of amazed at this turn towards neuropsychological testing. Everyone's looking for a brain dysfunction, and it's almost like they've thrown the mind away. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm very, you know, I mean, if there is um, an enemy in this book, you know, it's the uh, ideological uses of science. It would be one, you know, kind of obvious troublemaker throughout Mm -hmm. the course of this book. And the other would be the political and religious incursions into science. So I'm, I'm interested in these kind of border crossings where, where there are domains that on their own have a lot of legitimacy. But when they expand and move into, uh, you know, other arenas can really complicate either our political uh, life, our individual rights. Uh, because remember, if the AI people are right, if the neuroscientists or reductionists are right, there's no such thing as democracy. Mm-hmm. If really we're computers, if really we are machines and have no free will, democracy, individual rights, everything that's based on humanism is just a big mistake. It's a rather radical position that we see that you and I see slipped into, you know, neuroscience and neuropsychology and neuropsychoanalysis and mm-hmm. neuro law and neuroethics and these neuro things that have become the rage lately, you know, that people don't stop and say, well, what are the implications of this? They're mm-hmm. actually massive. I, I was on a, I was on a, a radio show and the guy said, well, if that's true, there's no, no psychotherapy, right? If, if really the neuroscience reductionistic view is true, and I said, it's much worse than that. <laughs> it's not, forget psychotherapy. There's no democracy. Mm-hmm. We're, we're totally confused about what's created acts of culture. And in our, there's nothing that's humanly made in that case with intention. Think about the implications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even the implications, if we have um, the political implications that you pretty much draw out in the book is if we have souls uh, then we need a monarch. 
because our souls are either deemed, you know, ethical by God or the devil has possessed us in some way. And we have this yeah. kind of benevolent dictator who is deemed, I don't know, worthy by God in some sort of way. But if we yeah. have minds, then we can think for ourselves and we can govern ourselves. I'd never really put that together, that there was a, an argument about the mind really drove the change uh, of politics in Europe. Yeah. That's well, you know, I think the light, the light bulb went off in my head really when I was studying John Locke, because what most people don't know about John Locke, they think of him as a political theorist. John Locke was a doctor, mm. and John Locke studied with the great brain anatomist Thomas Willis. I have his notes. He took quite beautiful notes, actually. <laughs> you know, and, and so he was this guy who was studying the brain, treating patients, and gradually moving into this very unstable world in England uh, where they were searching for some sort of set of principles which were going to end up being the principles of liberalism. So this one guy embodied a lot of what I wanted to understand, and I was quite surprised because I didn't know he was a doctor, and I didn't know he studied with Thomas Wells, and I didn't know he had these interests in the brain and the mind that ultimately, I argue, underwrote his notion of what would be a liberal political culture. Hmm. That was all new to me and quite fascinating. And I think it was kind of when the light bulb went off about how critical psychology was to political life and political life was to psychology. Yeah, I mean, it's really great. Not only if we have souls or if we have minds, but then what do you do with that mind uh, when it's not competent? What do you do exactly. with a democracy when our reason is flawed? Yes. No. And this is, this is, you know, absolutely right. And this is, this is where, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty um, harsh on Foucault in a bunch of different ways, but this is where Michel Foucault like really opened up the door when he said, you know, the age of reason was also necessarily the age of unreason mm -hmm. that if you're predicating a whole society on rationality and reason, then suddenly you're not thinking about sin so much. You're not thinking about the demons who possess so much. You're thinking about the loss of reason. You're thinking about unreason. And you're thinking very much about how you manage madness in a society where deluded people sounding rational can be a disaster, can cause huge um, social unrest, right? So suddenly these, this group of people, these doctors, who are, are, are suddenly thrust into the, the battle in terms of securing a liberal society based on reason, where anyone who has a different point of view should be heard unless the different point of view is mad, right? So that unless mm. means someone's got to be, you know, charged, charged with, the, with, with the authority to make that distinction. Right. Amazing. Um, so you move from England. I, I feel like I've been all over the continent in this book. We kind of like, we, it starts with a little bit of Greece. We go to England. We move to France, back to England, a little Germany. Um, so you move to France after Locke and yeah. really talk about the vitalists. Uh, but you also make a point of the difficulty of translating Locke's new words mind. Yes. Can you say a little bit about the difficulty in translation, not only with sure. Locke, but that continues to this day? Yes. So, so yeah, the, the book really starts with, you know, this kind of, uh, this group that is not really so bound by country. 
and they're the republic of letters just the, you know, the first the first section really does move as you say between england and france and holland where these people have to flee they're all on the run most of these people so but they're they're called the republic of letters commonly amongst historians because they communicate via letters and they're these these, yeah, these they call themselves modernists so that's the first section. The second section really is an argument, uh, in a way. It's a bit argumentative. Most people think of the Enlightenment as really starting in France, but uh, influenced by Roy Porter and a bunch of other people, I argue that really this got going uh, a, century, a century earlier in England. So the, first, the second section is on England, and then we move to France. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that... Um, the freedom that the the, England, that, that the British Isles had in both England and in Scotland, especially, made for a debate about minds and 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 mental capacities that was far beyond the French, uh, say by 1730. And the French lived under an absolutist monarch. They lived under great. You know, there's a Catholic country where where they the, rev, the revocation and edict of Nantes meant that the Huguenots and the Protestants were kicked out of the country. So this was a rather uh, a strict puritanical kind of country in terms of the possibilities discussing the mind. And uh, that starts to loosen up around the 1750s, 40s and 50s in France. And um, they start to import the ideas from England about the mind. And, and so I, I do a pretty close reading of what happens in translation because it was, it's very interesting to this day. To this day, if you ask the French, what's their word for mind? They will tell you esprit. Now, esprit means spirit. That's mm-hmm. literally what it means. But if you have a book called Revolution in Mind, and it's coming out in French, they're going to translate mind as esprit. <laughs> this was another way that I came across this, this oddity. Um, same thing in Germany. There's a, there's a word geist which is going to be used, and zelo, which is soul. So the word spirit and soul are the words that they use to try to translate mind. And in the process, you know, I argue that there's a kind of uh, upside and a downside. The upside is there's a plausible deniability with, in front of the censors. That you, if you say that you're talking about esprit, you sound like you're talking about something that's very much consistent with Catholic doctrine. Except if you keep reading what these people are writing, they mean that it's material, that it's Lockean, that it's based on associations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So even though most of these people did get run out of the country, they stuck to this word esprit and the, that the first translator used for Locke's mind. They said they had lot, the, the first translator had lots of problems. Consciousness. He didn't, there's no French word that he found for consciousness, so he used the same word that the French used for conscience. Now, again, think about that. That's the distinction between an idea that's completely secular, consciousness, and conscience, which is a very old, very important idea to uh, Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. So these are these slippages, semantic slippages, they call them in linguistics, right, where, where the same word seems to be polysemic. It has two meanings. It has, in this case, rather opposite meanings. And that charges the French use of this set of concepts, uh, you know, it allows them before 1789 to pursue these concepts, but they have to be very careful. They can use these words, but they might be crossing the line if it's clear that they're using Condillac or Helvidius' notions 
a display which are Lockean ideas about the mind. So it, it, it gets ambiguous, and I try to I try to help the reader through mm-hmm. understanding that you know that as as they once called it, I think in the Reagan administration, you know, plausible deniability was a good thing when you were living under a censor. Mm-hmm. In France. I- Two of my favorite characters in your book, and they really come across as characters like in a novel, um, I'd have to say is Mesmer. Mm. And then later on in the book, we have Dr. Gall. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gall, yeah. and, and both of them with mesmerism and phrenology. These two yeah. sort of debunked, quote unquote, sciences actually end up leading to really important discoveries. Well, you know, this is, thank you for saying that, because one of the, one of the points of this book, if you will, another kind of little argument um, if, that's embedded in the book is that, you know, the people who write history of science, who only write about the good ideas, and, you know, you tend to stand in judgment and mockery of the, quote, bad ideas, um, miss, I think, um, the opportunity to see when ideas that in retrospect were wrong might have held a lot of meaning and even value for people at the time and even generated good ideas that ended up being valid. So that, you know, we would, I try to incorporate, um, you know, the supposed losers of history into this story because sometimes they are without them. You kind of can't tell the story. I, I did that. I really tried to do the same thing in revolution in mind where, you know, so many people had been written out of that history and I really, and people like Wilhelm Reich, et cetera, et cetera, who were considered an embarrassment after the Oregon box, et cetera, that they needed to be put back into history. Because if you didn't put Wilhelm Reich back in the story, you didn't understand how character became so important to analysis, et cetera. So, so in this case, you know, the, the, some of the biggies are vitalism, which has always been mocked and considered to be this silly French notion of biology that actually um, I make a big claim for as being central to both Philippe Pinel's idea of mental medicine and the emergent notion that the mind could be, sorry, the, the idea that the mind could be an emergent property of physiologic processes, that they were unified in one body. Uh, vitalism, you know, was in some ways clearly wrong but it gave people what was a scientifically kind of reasonable um, grounding to make these claims and build from them and build in ways that I think were quite productive. Um, you know, Mesmer and, and Gall, same thing. You know, Mesmer ends up he really um, bitter, bitter about his own movement and the way it's betrayed him because Mesmer really um, is the father of neuroreductionism. Mesmer was the guy who really thought that the magnetic forces of the universe mm-hmm. structured our thought, our behavior. We didn't have any intention or will. But one of the, the people in his group ended up creating the idea that ideas could be passed back and forth in un- the unconscious. And so mesmerism, animal magnetism, started to lose touch with its, the, the actual very strongly held ideology of its founder and became hypnotism. Yeah. Same thing with Gaul. Gaul is the is the head of phrenology. Everyone knows those little glass uh, sure. heads, you know, <laughs> with all. Of it. And we all laugh and how silly. And and you know the mistakes that these people made are important, are instructive too. I mean, 
the, the reductionism of Mesmer is a, is a mistake that I think some people today should be considering very clearly. And, you know, the, the localization mania that Gaul started um, was, it should be considered as well. But Gaul was a great neuroanatomist, and, and Gaul um, blew people away because he knew more brain anatomy than anybody else. Um, and the synthesis that he tried to make with localization uh, ends up being a, an embarrassment, but it's a very powerful embarrassment. It's a paradigm that people want to believe in. So that's part of the message, too, is that sometimes ideas that aren't valid in and of themselves fit so beautifully into the missing space that people adopt it even though, even though it's clearly not uh, validatable and even though it's not powerfully true. But they also make amazing discoveries that they don't realize. And I think I, I only saw that through reading your book. Like, <clears throat> you know, like you were saying earlier, that psychoanalysts really don't understand the history of, of the mind and the history of this thing that we practice, right? And people think it started with Freud in many ways. But when, what I liked about Mesmer was even though he's debunked and your magnets don't do anything and this animal magnetism, whatever, he's really establishing the transference. Yeah. I mean, that mm -hmm. there is a powerful relationship between yeah. doctor and patient, whether that's a sexual seduction, which some people said, or, um, or it's just sort of some sort of brute force. Like the, the fact that I am a doctor, you will, uh, you know, I will control you or, or make you have contortions or something like this. Right. There's also the unconscious um, connection or con unconscious communication. But he also discovered, at least when through my read of your book, that there was a part of the mind that the patient wasn't aware of. Yes. Well, you know, this is the thing is that 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 I, I agree with you that that Mesmer was working exemplifying some of these ideas. But it's really his follower, Puisigur, who ends up mentalizing them. Mm. So he thinks it's all, he, he's doing all this stuff, and he's touching people. And, he's, and the Franklin Commission is saying, there's something going on here. It ain't what Mesmer says. It's not magnetic forces. It has to do with seduction and the imagination. And people are starting to say, well, wow, does the imagination have that much power? Mm -hmm. What's going on in the imagination? Well, Puisigur, who's his follower, starts to talk about how it's ideas being transferred back and forth between people. And that, you know, people have argued is the kind of earliest prehistory of transfer theory. Yeah, it's fantastic. Then you move really into um, a, a really kind of robust discussion of the French Revolution. And again, you know, I've read a little bit about the French Revolution, but I never really thought about reason uh, sort of turning into passion, which is you described so beautifully, like this revolution that really started uh, as a very reasonable revolution, but ends up being so bloody and totally yeah. just, um, you know, impassioned in a way. Yeah, you know, again, it's a, it's it's a it's a lesson that um, we never learn that, that that you know these that that violence has its own logic and. Uh, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, because, because this book is, it's about the history of the mind. It's also about the history of Western secularism mm -hmm. and modernity. Um, you know, that I do give a good 
a good deal of space to the French Revolution. And, um, you know, the, the hopes um, that people had for the French Revolution that in the terror um, turned so bad. The reason that's important is because it then motivates um, a whole bunch of reformers who were on the side of the revolution but then horrified by the terror, who come to power um, for a short period of time after 1793, say 1793 and 1815. Um, and they end up being incredibly critical to the history of the mind and the human sciences because that's where Philippe Pinal comes in and tries to establish medicine that's mental medicine. And that's where Cabigny comes in and starts to establish a science that's a human science. And they do it with the notion that there is no soul. This has nothing to do with supernatural causes. It is about an embodied mind that is an emergent property from physics and chemistry and all that other stuff. And they do it with the notion that if we fully understand this, we'll both be able to help people who are mentally ill and also organize a society that is safer and saner. Yeah. I was thinking about um, just the question of reason. Again, I was made me think so much about democracy and what do we do with our flawed reasons and how can we govern ourselves if, uh, you know, if we have such flawed reason and then I was thinking about um, the French Revolution and how that was trumped. Reason was trumped by passion, and I thought of the word Trump, right? And I think <laughs> of politics today. Like when I watch politics and and sort of the arguments that are going on on television, it really seems to be driven by passion. Like we seem yeah. to be in a time where passion is driving the political instead of reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, that, that's a longstanding argument and it's a very, very interesting one. And, and, um, you know, I think of the Arab spring too, where you see these, you know, kind of secular, uh, reasoned kind of protests and movements that they get, get swamped by, uh, by passion and then by, you know, more radical violence and forces that, that, you know, uh, are out of, out of, you know, outside the control of liberals and, and secular um, reformers. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, has have politics always, I think politics probably always been dominated by passion, and that one of the things that, that um, you know, liberals' modern discourse attempts to do is actually at least layer on um, a, a capacity for reason to have a role in that. You know, that, that if you think about um, how people um, end up uh, voting, a lot of it has to do with the communities that they're in, their identities, a lot of a priori stuff before anyone says anything in a debate. Uh, and, um, you know, the liberal hope, right, is that some people change their mind when they hear what the candidate has to say, mm-hmm. that it's not just based on identity and and passion and who has the best hair (laughs) (laughs) or the worst hair, right? Or the worst hair in this case, which I think it's a very bad. I I used to say that the guy with the best hair wins. And now we have the guy and, 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 and and a woman and, and one guy with very strange hair. Um, But uh, you know, I, I think, I think the point here is that, um, you know, passion is part of the glue of a society. And uh, the Scottish were really good about that. In the beginning of the book, I talk Mm -hmm. about the Scots and they, 
they developed this whole notion of sympathy where, you know, there is this kind of like almost electrical current of, of, of feeling that links a community together. And that's how Adam Smith comes up with his idea of, you know, the invisible hand of the economy. He thinks that there's all of these people kind of sympathetically riffing off each other and that that's going to be a self-regulating system. So most people don't recognize that when they use that term in economics, they don't recognize there was a theory of mind underneath that. And Adam Smith's first book was about um, uh, the, the moral and, 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 and the way the mind. So, uh, you know, I, it, was it always that way? I, I don't know. I, I think that the idea that the age of reason put forward is that um, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be driven by passion. It shouldn't be driven by fear. It should be driven by reason. And yet we keep finding that fear and passion um, are ways that uh, you win votes. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it brings me back to like um, reading the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers when I was in college. And I think one of the beautiful things that the Founding Fathers tried to do in America was to put a third, right? They really put structure a certain structure of checks and balances or whatever you want to say to slow the process down so that yep. hopefully reason would win out over passion. Yeah, no, I agree. With that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, think, I think that's right. The other thing I was wondering about is, um, you know, early on in the book and, and one of the first comments you made in this interview was about how, um, well, you had doctors and you had philosophers, right? Really the, the history of the mind, um, has been a, a philosophical story. And now you're telling uh, the history of the mind from a, a medical, a, a doctor, a psychological point of view. And I was wondering if you could say something about the role of philosophy and medical doctors in regards to mental health. I mean, I think we see this today with, you know, sort of ego psychology in America, which is very medical in its history. And then you see the French in their psychoanalysis, um, which is very more philosophical, I would, I would say in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And thank you for that question. Let me take it just a step back on that question because it's a very important point for this book. Okay. This is not a history of philosophy. This is not a history of psychiatry and the mad and mental illness. It is the, the, the kind of claim of this book is that it's a history of both. That those things are artificially separated by people who are writing in, in fields and in departments that were segregated you know, far later, the late 19th century, and they became departments of philosophy and psychology and, and psychiatry. But that at the time that these things started to take shape, they were, part, they were being formed by people who were part of the same community. Mm-hmm. The philosophers did lots of brain anatomy. The brain anatomists wrote lots of philosophy. The people who were treating the mad were writing about the nature of the mind and the brain. And the idea that these were one or the other is, I think, a um, flawed one and a, an impoverished one. So this book really is about showing that people like John Locke studied the brain, treated mentally ill people, and wrote philosophy, and so did, and, and so did a lot of other people. And that when, by the time that science really is gaining a lot of prestige, the philosophical becomes incorporated into these people who have dual identities as both philosophers and, and doctors, and they even have a phrase for it, that which I use numerous times, 
in in the book in France, you know, that these people were philosophes médecins. Mm-hmm. And so they were really people who had dual identities because they were taking up some of the questions of philosophy of mind and using the understanding of anatomy and of mental illness and of physiology to try to root those things, those big questions in the body. So that's the, that's the kind of overview. Now, in terms of, of your question about uh, um, how to think about, about some of the more contemporary examples, you know, I think that the, 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 the different kinds of discourses in different communities can be quite separate. In other words, there can be a quite separate notion of philosophy that doesn't encounter anything that has to do with the brain uh, or the, um, you know, uh, examples we have of mental illness. And there can be the converse, the, uh, the, the people who think only about um, the body and, and, and ignore the philosophical questions. I find that, you know, both of those are legitimate. I don't have a problem with you with people narrowing their focus because the field in Toto is unbelievably overwhelming. So I think it can be quite fascinating to say, I'm going to look at this angle on these questions. As long as you don't have the kind of arrogance to say, and without even discussing those other angles, they're irrelevant or stupid or wrong. Sure. That's what drives me crazy. So if someone in France wants to, to pursue you know, a highly philosophical, let's say phenomenological approach to um, psychoanalytic material. Cool. That sounds interesting. I have no problem with that. And if someone wants to say, look, I have no idea what's going on in the mind. I'm really interested in studying rats and what happens in the serotonin system when we do this or that. I have no problem with that. That's all good too. This is such a complicated field that the mind brain that there's, plenty of room for people to take limited approaches and try to pursue answerable questions. What becomes destructive, I think, is the grander claim that this one more narrow approach uh, makes other approaches irrelevant um, without even arguing that case, right? It's almost, it's it's just a kind of uh, almost implicit. You, there's no such thing as the mind, so we can just go forward with reductive neuroscience without taking up the critical questions that would maybe suggest there is such a thing as a mind. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there is a, a set of, of philosophical concerns that negate the body and negate any information we have from the neurosciences. And both of those I find to be, you know, um, less interesting than those people who really try to... Um, either engage with those questions or are smart enough to at least bracket the work that they do by saying, I'm not, I'm not talking about that other stuff. Mm -hmm. We're getting towards the end of our 50 minute hour. Um, So is there, what would you like to leave the audience with or what do you want to leave the reader with? I mean, when I think of history, I think you need to learn history or you're doomed to repeat it. What would you like to tell people today or what do you want them to learn from this history of the mind uh, and apply in, in modern day? Well, you know, I think in, in that your audience is a psychoanalytic audience, um, I would say this. Uh, psychoanalysis is a field right now, and maybe always has been a field, that um, is 
very open, should be very open to innovation, reform, improvement. These are we, all the models we have are, I think, contingent, limited, and, um, and, and, and we need a whole new generation of thinkers to emerge in psychoanalysis who can really, you know, um, reframe and, and may I even use the word improve the models that we have to enrich them and to make them more powerful in helping our patients. To do that, I think it becomes deeply interesting and, and hopefully deeply helpful to have a history of these, the problems that we face that go back beyond Freud and that the education that we've had that starts with Sigmund Freud and moves forward limits our capacity to think about the problems. Now, this book, Soul Machine, The Invention of the Modern Mind, isn't about an answer. I've tr- what I've tried to do is kind of reanimate um, the discussions, the questions, and the outcomes of the answers that people had so that we can think through different ways of imagining our future, not the past, but our future, and, 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 and kind of enrich and, and embolden people to think through new and potentially innovative strategies for thinking about the mind and the body and the brain, all stuff that still remains so deeply problematic. Yeah. Well, the book is called Soul Machine, The Invention of the Modern Mind, published by Norton 2015. George Macari, thank you so much for being a guest here on New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thanks, Will. It's been a lot of fun. A lot. Thank you. Bye-bye.